Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds. My name is Eunice Dugan. I'm a Johns Hopkins internal medicine resident, future cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and most importantly, a huge cardio nerd. I am thrilled and honored to announce that I will be chief for House Tausig in the upcoming Cardio Nerds Academy, where we will work together to learn, produce, and disseminate digital education for everyone. So stay tuned for a bright future in asynchronous medical education. We hope you enjoyed this incredible case from the University of Illinois with top-notch teaching from colleagues, Drs. Brody Slostead, Kavin Arasar, and Mary rodriguez Zacardi. Additionally, we are proud to include the University of Illinois Cardiology Fellowship Program on the CardioNerds Healy Honor Roll, the list of programs which support our mission to democratize cardiovascular education. They do so by creating open access content like this episode and nominating a fellow ambassador to CardioNerds to help us do this good work. Representing University of Illinois will be none other than Dr. Brody Slawstead. Is your program a CardioNerds program? If not, email us at CardioNerds at gmail.com to help us teach the world. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the CardioNerds. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you are about to hear is HIPAA compliant. If you'd like to present your case on the show, submit your case using the link in the show notes. Now let's dive into another fascinating CardioNerds case report. CardioNerds, we are back with another awesome case. I've been looking forward to this one for some time now, but here it is. Today's the day. We get to host our colleagues and fellows from the University of Illinois Chicago Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. To teach us today, we welcome Drs. Brody Slostad, Kavin Arasar, and Mary Rodriguez-Zicardi. Folks, welcome to the show. Really excited to dive in. But before we do, tell the audience who you are. Hey, guys. I'm Brody Slostad, one of the second-year fellows at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Future plans for me would be non-invasive and imaging in terms of uh, my future in cardiology. Hi, guys. My name is Kavin Arasar. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm currently a second-year cardiology fellow, and my plans are most likely going to go towards interventional cardiology. Hi, everybody. I'm Mary Rodriguez. I'm a third-year cardiology fellow and chief fellow from the University of Illinois at Chicago, and my plans are non-invasive cardiology. Mary, Kavin, Brody, it is such a pleasure to have you on this episode today. For me personally, Chicago is one of my favorite cities in the world. It's where I did my undergraduate training, and it's such a pleasure to be back with you guys in Chicago. Summertime shy, which everyone is a huge fan of, but even more so, I love the fall in Chicago. So I need you guys to take us somewhere to discuss an awesome cardiology case and share your wonderful city with the rest of the cardio nurse family out here. So where are you going to take us, guys? We've decided the best place to do this, because it's fall and it's a little bit chilly, is to be on the top floor of the John Hancock, overlooking the skyline and the lake, and enjoying a good cup of tea. 
Kevin, this is incredible. The view from up here is just amazing. I wish I could share this with everyone, but we'll have to do that later. As we sit atop this building with this view, tea in hand, let's dive in. What do we have today? All right, guys. So we have an 87-year-old lady uh, with a past medical history of hypertension, diabetes, and dementia. She's presenting with a two-week history of nausea and vomiting and altered mental status, along with some visual disturbance that she describes as having a yellow filter uh, over everything that she sees. Two weeks prior to this, she had been able to speak normally and was actually able to take care of herself and perform all activities of daily living. Uh, In terms of her social history, she actually lives with a caretaker family. She was an au pair for this family for several years and then ended up living with them afterwards. But we didn't have a whole lot of contact with the caretaker who dropped her off, but just enough to get that HPI. So we don't have much more in terms of her social history of her family history. But we did have a a brief handwritten medication list that included metformin, pravastatin, and valsartan as well. Brody, this is a challenging presentation to start off with, right? Because if a patient comes to you with right lower quadrant abdominal pain, that is, at least to some degree, more localizing, right? You kind of know where to hone in your diagnostic evaluation. This patient, however, is coming in with a more vague symptomatology. So nausea and vomiting, you could imagine, okay, these are GI symptoms. Is there GI pathology like pancreatitis, cholecystitis, gastroenteritis? Or is this just something systemic going on and it's your body's response to some metabolic derangement or toxidrome or even emotionally triggered? For altered mental status, I like to think about the misnomer from the clinical problem solvers, metabolic, infectious, structural, toxic, but really a broad differential diagnosis from the get-go. And then visual disturbance, kind of like nausea and vomiting, the visual disturbance may be localizing to the central nervous system as well as the eye, just essentially from the cornea all the way down to the occipital lobe. But it can also just be from a systemic process that is altering your visual perception, right? And so, you know, we have everything from a central CNS pathology at this point, all the way down to a metabolic issue like hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar state. So at this point, this is just challenging from the get-go. And can I just ask, uh, where are we right now? Are we in the clinic or are we in the hospital? Emergency department. That's where she's presenting. Gotcha. So whatever's going on, I think, you know, we have to figure it out because just by being in the ED, somebody was concerned enough uh, that there's a level of acuity and definitely a change from baseline, but then also a broad differential from the get-go. I'm going to agree with you. And I, I know we're on the Cardio Nerds podcast, but we all were internists first and remain internists first. And I would highly suggest for all of our listeners to go review the clinical problem solvers, our friends at the clinical problem solvers schema for approaching altered mental status. And I really do like the missed approach, which Amit went through quite well. But there's also a second part to it, the quote unquote, missed negative diagnoses, where we initially evaluate for a metabolic cause, infection, structural, like a subdural hemorrhage or stroke, a toxin, like someone that's been an opiates, but also that second part. Well, when those things are negative, what else could be there? And that includes things like dementia, and you've mentioned that in this patient, but something has changed, and I think that's a critical point here. We have someone that has a baseline neurocognitive deficit and is now worsening to the point to arrive to the emergency department. And in the elderly, when this happens, I immediately think towards medications. And so we'll be paying close attention to how these medications were administered, what doses they are, or if there are any other medications at home for the patient. 
So what did the physical exam show? Thanks, guys. I think those are excellent points. And yeah, it is a broad differential. But in terms of the physical examination, her blood pressure was 122 over 74. Heart rate was 95 beats per minute. And she was setting 96% on room air and she was afebrile. In general, she was altered, not really able to participate in conversation or really the examination in general. She was short in stature and thin, but not cachectic at this point. Uh, in terms of her HEENT exam, her pupils were equal, round, and reactive to light and accommodation. Her mucous membranes were dry, and her JVP was flat. In terms of her cardiac examination, she had a regular rate and rhythm, no murmurs, rubs, or gallops, and no lower extremity edema. Her lungs were cleared auscultation bilaterally, and her abdomen was soft, non-tender, and non-distended. In terms of her neurologic examination, again, she wasn't really able to participate because she was quite altered at this time. She was alert and oriented times zero, but she was noted to be able to move all four extremities independently against gravity, and she did not have any focal neurologic deficits at this time. So it seems like the very initial physical exam, we see a patient that we may have taken care of many times before, where they're not critically ill at this time. We have normal vital signs. They're afebrile. And really, a rather unremarkable physical exam, with the exception that the patient is very altered. Yeah, Kevin, I think this is a great pickup, right? This physical exam overall is quite reassuring. A heart rate of 95 is a little bit high. It's not above 100 tachycardic. But as you pointed out, what's impressive is how unimpressive this is. So we were thinking, is nausea, vomiting, is it an abdominal catastrophe? And we don't really have a surgical abdomen. Could there's, you know, this patient doesn't have the vital signs for sepsis or other infectious syndrome. Although maybe for the elderly, they may have a lower temperature despite having an infection. The neurological exam is reassuring in that it's not focal. And so an intracranial process may be less likely. And so just with these vague symptoms that can be non-localizing and the absence of localizing signs on exam, I'm starting to think a little bit more of a systemic process. But, you know, the exam is, I think the sensitivity of the exam to pick up pathology can be limited. And so we still have to keep looking. I think those are great points, Amit. And I would just add, I think, Brody, you made a, a great case on your examination, or at least built a case for that this patient appears slightly dry in the setting of nausea, vomiting, for whatever it's worth, the mucous membranes being slightly dry. And we know the sensitivity specificity of that is low and a JVP that wasn't elevated. And we point that out because we know that while medications like Valsartan and metformin are generally well-tolerated, their therapeutic index narrows, especially in the elderly, and especially as they get fluctuations in their volume status. So I do think this exam was extremely helpful for now pointing towards thinking, has something that we've been given this patient for treatment has now been altered by the fact of there's been some change in their underlying renal function. And so I'm going to be paying close attention to the laboratory values. So what showed up on the labs? So in terms of the laboratory values that were obtained in the emergency department, the, these were notable for a normal CBC. In terms of the BMP, this was notable for a potassium of 6.2, a bicarb of 28, and a creatinine of 1.5. Outside of that, other laboratory values that were obtained were normal magnesium at 1.9, a slightly elevated calcium at 10.3, slightly elevated glucose at 199, lactic acid was normal at 1.7, TSH was normal at 0.96, 
A full liver panel was also obtained, which was within normal limits. Urine drug screen was also obtained in negative. And the initial urinalysis was also within normal limits. And on top of that, I forgot to mention, a lipase was also normal. Yeah, so these labs are really helpful. And when I think about the M in MIST for metabolic causes of altered mental status, a helpful thing to do is just go down your complete metabolic profile or panel and look at the laboratory numbers and values that, that when deranged can affect the mental status. So, you know, one thing I look at is sodium, your bicarbonate, it can be an index of your CO2, and so you can have CO2 narcosis. BUN is really useful, uremic encephalopathy. Calcium, when high, can certainly cause encephalopathy, and the here the calcium was a little bit high. The glucose level, too high and too low, can definitely cause neural altered mental status. We do have the TSH. The liver profile was normal, and so we're thinking this may not be a patient with chronically diseased liver causing hepatic encephalopathy. The urine drug screen is very helpful, and so you know I think it at least knocks out a few of the offenders for toxic encephalopathy. And the urinalysis is helpful because, you know, a UTI and potentially even looking at ketones in the urine can be relevant. But so Brody, maybe I would go back and ask, do we have a sodium and a BUN just to complete the M for the surface level M for mist? Certainly. Yes. The sodium was 132 and the BUN was 28 as well. Gotcha. So far, we don't really have too much beyond an, a creatinine elevation and a potassium elevation. And that takes me back to what Karen was saying with the possible new acute renal failure in an elderly, making them more susceptible to medication and other exposures. Absolutely. I think you guys are all on the right track. I think we've delineated exactly what her physical exam is finding, and that's translating into the labs that we found. And it also is going to translate into the next steps that we found. So the initial testing for this patient, because she was presenting with altered mental status, other tests that were obtained was a CT head, and that showed no acute processes no acute bleed, no acute stroke or anything of that nature. A chest x-ray was also obtained, which was unremarkable as well. And then on top of that, as most any ED patient would get in this setting, an EKG was performed. So the EKG was obtained. And just so everyone knows, all of these EKGs are going to be available on the website. And instead of simply just telling you what the EKG showed, I thought this was a very particularly interesting EKG. So I'm going to ask the help of my co-fellows, Kavan and Mary, to discuss what they see on this EKG. So Kavan and Mary, what do you see? Thanks, Brody. So looking at this EKG, the first thing we want to do, right, is to see what's happening in the atria uh, and whether or not this is a sinus P wave. So I'm looking at two and I'm looking at V1 and the axes are appropriate. So I want to say this is sinus. There's a QRS following every P wave. So initially, my thought is this is sinus tack. But then I start looking more closely at the relationship between the P wave and the QRS. The PR intervals are actually quite variable. They look like they're increasing um, if we look at the rhythm strips. And then at the very end, there's a dropped QRS wave. So I think initially this EKG looks like it can fool you into thinking this is just a sinus rhythm, but it looks like it's there's an AV block involved in there. Mary, what do you think? Yeah, I agree with you, Kevin. You can see that the P waves dissociate from the QRX complex and the atrial and ventricular rate are similar. And this is secondary to the slowing down of the sinus rate but also acceleration of the junctional ray, making it look almost regular, or what we call isorhythmic sinus rhythm. 
You can also see there's a T-way, our abnormals, they look like a scoop T-ways in lead 1, 2, AVL, B5, and B6. But to be honest with you, I don't think this EKG narrowed down our differential diagnosis. And just to clarify, this isorhythmic rhythm that we see, is it because the QRS complexes look, they're so accelerated, they almost look like they're following a P wave? Yes, that's what it is. And that's the reason why you see it like they come out close together, correlated, but they're actually not correlated. Yeah, you know, that's a great read. And I almost, when I initially look at this EKG, I also fell for that trap of saying, oh, this is just a normal sinus rhythm. And it wasn't until you mentioned it that I realized that the PR was indeed prolonging in the last, at least the last P wave, and it gets cut off there in this uh, 10 second strip, um, is not conducted. So definitely a red flag, not just a straightforward sinus rhythm. And there's something just odd about these ST T wave changes. I can't quite place it just yet. I think we'll see as a, how the case progresses, but it just looks odd. And that's all I really have for now. And then the last comment I have is, you know, when uh, on CardioNerds, we're so thankful that Curran joined our team. And as we welcomed him to the CardioNerds family as one of our core producers and really education mentors, he asked us, he's like, wait, is CardioNerds an ECG platform or is it an EKG platform? And I've always thought of it as EKG. And I notice that you guys agree with us there. I mean, I think that is the the thing that I'm going to bring to the podcast the most is this revolution to recall EKG and start calling it ECG, because I think that's the proper way to call this rhythm strip that we're demonstrating here. <laughs> well, I guess if you want to be proper about it, electrocardiogram. <laughs> and, I, and I, you know, just to jump off of the points that were made so far, going back to what we had from the labs, we saw that the potassium was 6.2. I agree with this wonderful read that you guys all gave us here, but I'm also trying to pay attention to, do I see manifestations of hyperkalemia on this EKG? Now, you know, there are the classic changes, including the peak T waves, which which we usually see once we get to a potassium level above 5.5, 5.6. You know, as the potassium continues to rise, there can be progressive paralysis of the atria where the PR segment lengthens or the P wave eventually disappears. And even as we get higher, we can have a prolonged QRS interval. We get high-grade AV block, bizarre QRS morphology, you know, and our worst manifestations, including the sine wave and eventually ventricular fibrillation. But I'm not seeing any of that classic finding there. And even the high potential isorhythmic rhythm we see here, I, it really is not a typical manifestation of hyperkalemia. So I wonder, is there some chronic level of elevated potassium here as well? And or are we just not manifesting EKG changes or cardiac changes at this time? Absolutely. When we got this EKG, it's obviously when cardiology gets involved. And right now we know there's something wrong and we're trying to put it all together. We have someone who can't give us a history and there's a few lab abnormalities that can obviously affect the heart, but it's still relatively unclear at this point if there's something that's clicking in everybody's heads. So overall, at this point, I have a general level of worry, especially when I can't figure out what's going on, and there are life-potentially-threatening lab abnormalities, and then there's something that just has been difficult to define for this patient so far, altered mental status. We haven't been able to put it in a category. Is the patient comatose? Are they confused? Are they manifesting some level of a respiratory illness? Is this a myocardial infarction? We still haven't put it under one category. We have some lab data that has helped us get an idea of what's going on, but I, I have worry. And so I'm really interested to see what happened next. Definitely share in your worry. 
let's keep going. I think you guys were quite appropriately worried, and I will continue the case. So as your worry would indicate, this patient's mental status continued to decline to the point where she was unable to protect her airway any farther, and she became more and more hypoxic and needed to be intubated. At the same time, the patient was noted to be more and more bradycardic on telemetry. In the midst of her resuscitation, another chest x-ray was obtained, which showed a left lower lobe patchy opacity consistent with what we had suspected, which was aspiration pneumonia. Because the patient was becoming hypoxic, troponin was also trended at this time and throughout the next few hours in her hospital course. And that trended at uh, 0.08 to 0.2. And that's the standard troponin ISA, not high sensitivity troponin. And because she was bradycardic, on telemetry and in the midst again of this uh, resuscitation, another EKG or ECG, I will from now on refer to them as, uh, was obtained. And again, I think this is a very interesting ECG. And so I'm going to ask the help of Mary and Kavan to help describe what we see again. Well, Brody, I see a narrow complex QRS, slow ray, maybe in the 50s, but I can't see any P waves. Maybe a slow AFED, that's what I would say. And you can still see the scoop T waves that we described before. What do you think, Kevin? I think my read is going to be pretty similar. One thing, what's, again, first looking at what's going on in the atria, the EKG has a little bit of an artifactual baseline, but I don't see any P waves. So I'm going to, and the rate is irregular. So I'm going to call this AFib, but it's very slow AFib. And I'm wondering if that AV block that we noticed in the first EKG is now getting progressively worse which is going to start matching our patient whose clinical status is also worsening at a pretty acute rate. I agree. I think that exactly what you said, this looks like a slow atrial fibrillation. And again, this patient's clinical course is rapidly changing, but at this time, I'm not sure if we can pin this EKG finding or ECG finding on being an etiology or a response to exactly what's going on with this patient. And because this is, you know, kind of rapidly changing so fast in this patient's clinical presentation, I thought right now would be a good time to just recap what we know about her. So this is a, an 87-year-old lady. She's presenting with two weeks of altered mental status and more recently, within the last few days, worsening nausea and vomiting and inability to take PO. Initially, she presented with what appeared to be an isorhythmic atrial activity with a competing junctional rhythm potentially, which turned into an atrial fibrillation with slow ventricular response, increasing our suspicion of AV block. The patient's altered mental status got worse and worse to the point where she couldn't protect her airway, aspirated, and needed to be intubated. And I know that we're all cardiologists, and we alluded to this uh, before, but I think we all are going to, in agreement at this point, that the patient's primary presentation is altered mental status. And I think it'd be prudent for us to go in depth and in detail in a differential diagnosis of altered mental status for this patient at this point to see if we can elucidate any etiology of her presentation. So Marion Coven, what do you think about this patient's altered mental status differential? So just a quick point that I think it's been brought up before that this is the type of situation we find ourselves in all the time. And now we're starting to look at this patient who's becoming more complicated as time goes on and increasingly critical. I think all of us sort of recognize this as the case is unfolding. So one thing we can do um, when we start feeling this pressure to immediately land on the diagnosis and you start to feel that pressure and panic build inside of you, it's just to take a step back and focus on her clinical presentation, which is altered mental status. 
And this has already been mentioned, and it's quite an excellent schema for understanding AMS, and that's MIST. I think it'll be a good idea for us to go through MIST and see if there's anything that rings true to us now that we know the clinical presentation a little bit more. Okay, so starting with M for metabolic causes, we can see in our patient, we have hyperkalemia and an AKI that are probably related to the nausea and vomiting that might probably cause dehydration in our patient. But there's no evidence of shock as her blood pressure was normal and her lactate was normal. And also we have a normal pH. Looking for organ dysfunction, that is another part of these metabolic causes. We have a mildly elevated troponin, but she doesn't have any cardiac symptoms. There's no ECG, ischemic changes. And an echo that was normal ejection fraction without regional wall motion abnormalities, making unlikely for this patient to have an acute ischemic event and more likely that troponin elevation is secondary to demand ischemia due to the acuity of her symptoms. Kevin, what uh, I stand for? So I, as it's been mentioned, is for infection. And of course, when we have an elderly patient with changes in mentation, we always think of infection. Here, we split it into two categories, into CNS pathologies, which would include meningitis, and not CNS pathologies, you know, with our most common UTI, bacteremia, pneumonia, which she seems like she has. Um, at the time of her presentation, of course, infection was considered. She is a febrile, but as it was astutely mentioned, elderly people can have a lower body temperature. So this needs to be understood in that context. But she didn't have a leukocytosis. Overall, with her labs and her presentation, I think infection is starting to be less likely here, but I don't think it's absolutely ruled out and we still need to do our due diligence. So S stands for structural causes and looking for a primary brain issue that will cause her changes in her mental status, like a stroke or a subdural hemorrhage. But in our patient, we did a CT head that was negative for acute events, and also her neurological exam did not show any focal neurological deficits. And then, of course, T for toxins. And this is quite a broad category. Uh, the one thing we can begin to rule out is medication side effects, which has already been somewhat mentioned. So she's taking metformin, valsartan, pravastatin. Um, so hopefully this should be easy based on those three. Out of those three, I think metformin is most likely to be the culprit, but her lactic acid is normal, so that kind of drops it down on my differential. And as far as valsartan and pravastatin are concerned, even with her renal failure, or we assume her AKI, neither of those medications seem responsible for her specific constellation of symptoms. Our next thought is medications she might have accidentally ingested. And of course, it could be any medication. So I'm still keeping this pretty high on my differential until we can talk to family. The other category is illicit drugs, which is less likely considering her negative UDS. And the other one is herbal medications again, which is still possible since we haven't interviewed family at this time. So for me overall, I think toxins and medications are still pretty high on my differential before we get more history. Guys, this was such an incredible example of just good clinical reasoning. You know, again, I'm a little perplexed as to what's going on. We know that our concern and level of acuity is high and she is rapidly deteriorating to the level of warranting intubation. And Brody's impulse was, listen, I'm not sure what's going on, but at this moment, let's just take a pause and recap. And what you did, Brody, was 
you define your problem representation, which is essentially a, a meaningful one-liner, right? So the epidemiology, the clinical syndrome, and the temporality or the duration of symptoms. And you said, look, this is an elderly woman with these risk factors and morbidities who's coming in with a subacute progressive course of the following clinical syndrome. And I think the clinical syndrome here really is predominantly a triad of gastrointestinal upset, neurological disturbance with altered mental status. And what wasn't clear in the HPA, but now clearly is, is electrical instability. And then based on that, what Kavin and Mary, you, you guys are doing so beautifully, is you're taking each one of those aspects of the clinical syndrome and dissecting out the diagnostic schema or an approach to it. And once you do that for the, the various aspects of the clinical syndrome, you can almost make like a Venn diagram and start mixing and matching and thinking about what's the base rate and how do the items on the differential diagnosis map onto the temporality and you fit all the data in. So this is I'm still not exactly clear on what's going on, but at least now we have a roadmap and we've already started taking things away from our differential diagnosis, like metabolic, organ dysfunction, infection, structural, and we're only left with a handful of things to tease out. But just want to commend you all for demonstrating how to approach a complicated case. What did you guys do next to tease us out? We've made large strides, but we still haven't identified the culprit. Yeah, you know, I think I'm just going to echo exactly what you said. This was a fantastic discussion on the differential diagnosis for altered mental status. And I think at this point, like you had said, we have ruled out a lot of causes of what's going on with this patient. But I want to give you a quick update on exactly what was going on with this patient from a social aspect. We had talked to her caregiver who had dropped her off. But like I said, this was like a handwritten medication list. And we really weren't very confident. We knew exactly what medications or really if anything else was being ingested by this patient whatsoever. And her caretaker left within a few minutes of dropping her off in the emergency department. So knowing that, I'm just going to take it, take us back to toxins. And let's just pretend like we have no idea whatsoever that what this patient is taking. So Kavan or Mary, if I told you that we have a patient with atrial tachyarrhythmias, which we do, atrial fibrillation and AV block because it's with a slow ventricular response, presenting with nausea, vomiting, yellow color vision, altered mental status, does that bring to mind any specific medication toxicity that you can think of? So if you had told me that this patient was a heart failure patient, I would probably put on my differential, did she ingest any beta blockers? Because certainly with her AV block and her bradycardia, that would be a worry. But two, if she was heart failure, you would also think uh, digoxin. I agree. And actually, the emergency department provider and the cardiology fellow on call also agreed with this and thought that the clinical situation was very suspicious for digoxin toxicity. And so a digoxin level was actually obtained and was elevated at 1.9 nanograms per milliliter. And if she didn't have any digoxin in her body, she shouldn't have any elevation in her digoxin level. And given that she did have this elevated digoxin level and really classic symptoms, which we'll get to in a second, this makes, uh, in my mind, and I, I can ask you guys what you think, but I, I think that digitalis toxicity or digoxin toxicity is a leading diagnosis based on that additional history and additional lab work. Wow, guys, hats off to whoever thought to send the digoxin level in this patient, because in retrospect, so much of this case fits that, to that particular toxidrome. But how often do we reach for that when it's not clearly on a patient's medication list? So really very commendable and really incredible. But really, just thinking through what's going on here, it fits so well. This triad of GI disturbance, neurologic disturbance, and electrical instability, 
is just so classic for digoxin toxicity. But she also gave us that yellow halloing or yellow filtering of her vision, right? That xanthopsia, which has been described. And then in retrospect, looking back at that EKG, I wasn't quite sure what to make of these ST wave changes, but it looks like, you know, now thinking about digoxin, it looks like that sort of Salvador Dali mustache sign, that sort of uh, scooped or sagged ST depression with a biphasic T wave. It definitely is beginning to fit. And again, going back to, you know, what Curran was hammering in all along with the elderly, the particularly susceptible to toxicities, especially with uh, renal dysfunction. And so you can certainly have digoxin toxicity, even in what we might call a normal therapeutic range. Here, it's clearly elevated. You know, I have to agree with Ahmed and commend the team here. There are things that become routine to us, admitting the patient, evaluating what the chief complaint is, putting in our orders. But that medication reconciliation is such a critical part of our evaluation of any patient, but especially elderly patients when they come to the hospital, as we know that medications and iatrogenic effects of those medications can certainly be the reason they're showing up in the hospital at all, or whether it's outside the hospital in the clinic where they may be having various symptoms. And so a commendable job to the team here for evaluating for other potential causes of this patient's symptoms. And now my mind is turning to, okay, well, how long has this patient been on digoxin? And are we manifesting an acute or chronic manifestation of digoxin toxicity? And I would label it digoxin toxicity because we're seeing the full spectrum of symptoms, the GI illness, the uh, visual disturbances, the yellow. And because Ahmed mentioned Salvador Dali, we'd be remiss not to mention Van Gogh, who may have had a digoxin toxicity or at least the chronic effects of digoxin toxicity being treated for it in the past. So, yeah, I think that's my next step is thinking about the acute versus chronic because it really is going to affect the management as we go forward. And in thinking about the acute, uh, with her altered mental status, inability to protect her airway, and progressive electrical instability, you it also begs the question is, how acutely do we need to manage this? Can we manage this conservatively and let things sort of uh, settle down? Or do we need to do something more aggressive, more urgent, and imminently to save her life? So, Brody, what did we do next? You guys, I think this has been a great discussion. And like we had said, based on all of you know our differential diagnosis, the leading diagnosis for this is uh, digitalis or digoxin toxicity. And I want to jump into exactly what we did next, but I think it would be prudent for us to just take a step back and review exactly what digitalis toxicity is, what it manifests as, especially with arrhythmias in mind, and then go forward with our case after that, okay? So in terms of digoxin toxicity, more broadly, this is referred to as digitalis toxicity. So the etiology of this is toxicity from cardiac glycosides. And what are those? So cardiac glycosides include digoxin or digitoxin, which is a hepatically metabolized version of digoxin, really, which really isn't available in the United States. And then other cardiac glycosides occur naturally in plants such as foxglove and oleander. But I want to make an important note that although these are all cardiac glycosides, they're all different molecules, and they behave differently with different treatments that we have available for digitalis toxicity. In particular, they have very, very differing half-lives as well. In terms of clinical manifestations of digitalis toxicity, they present exactly as our patient presented and has been discussed already. So patients present with altered mental status, xanthopsia, which is that yellow color vision, GI symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, and anorexia. Uh, and almost any arrhythmia can occur, but there's a couple of classic ones that I'll get into in a second. 
And then that scooped T-wave or mustache appearing T-wave, or as I like to call it, a hockey stick appearing T-wave is more specific for a digitalis or digoxin effect and not necessarily toxicity. And we'll get into that as well. So Brody, that's a really good breakdown of the manifestations of digitalis toxicity. I wonder if you could walk us through some of the physiology. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that's important because that's going to lay the foundation for what you know happens from an arrhythmia standpoint and how to manage digitalis uh, toxicity. So digoxin, digitalis, and other naturally occurring cardiac glycosides work by inhibiting the sodium-potassium ATPase. And when we're talking about cardiac manifestations, that's in the cardiac myocyte. And what does this do? So this is going to increase intracellular sodium and increase extracellular potassium, which is why we're going to see hyperkalemia in patients with digitalis toxicity, such as in our patient. That increased intracellular sodium is going to cause an increased influx of calcium into the cell via the cell's sodium-calcium antiporter. And that's important because calcium is the biggest player with digitalis toxicity. So that increased intracellular calcium is going to bind troponin C in a normal setting, and that's going to lead to increased inotropy. And that's why digoxin and digitalis and other things can be used as uh, an inotropic agent, especially in heart failure. In addition to the inotropic effects of digitalis and digoxin, cardiac glycosides also exhibit a parasympathetic effect. And that mechanism is not as clear-cut, but in general, what happens with that effect is that the sinoatrial firing rate reduces and the conduction velocity of impulses through the AV node also reduces. So you get what, what we saw in our patient as well as manifested as an AV block. So Brody, thanks for breaking that down. You know, and I think that helps me understand what was going on with this patient specifically. We saw that the patient went into atrial fibrillation, which, you know, not typically associated with digoxin toxicity or digitalis toxicity, but we did see the manifestation of the increased parasympathetic nervous system. And basically where the patient's arrhythmia was not being translated to the ventricles. And I'm trying to understand all the arrhythmias that get manifested with digitalis toxicity, specifically through the physiology you just described for us. So let's get back to our basic pathophysiology. So just like Brody said, due to the blocking effect of the digoxin in the sodium potassium ATPase, cause net increase with the intracellular sodium that is exchanged with the sodium calcium antiporter, causing an increase in the intracellular calcium and in the sarcoplasmic reticulum, resulting in a net depolarization current in the myocyte and increase in the inotropy of the cell. This net depolarizing current actually leads to delay after repolarization, which are responsible for the trigonal activity and result in the ventricular arrhythmias associated with digitalis toxicity. So now let's get nerdy about this and let's do a pop quiz. So which part of the ventricular action potential does digitalis toxicity affect in terms of ventricular arrhythmias? Any takers? You know, I didn't know this was going to be a quiz day, and now I'm getting much more nervous, but I, I guess I'll, I'll take it. I feel like what you're describing to me is where we have increased after depolarizations, and whether they are early or late, and if they're late, then I'm thinking of phase four. So is that correct? Please be correct, because I don't want to be embarrassed on the Cardio Nerds podcast. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It's actually phase four. 
So just like we discussed previously, the net depolarization is a calcium current related, and this leads to delay after depolarizations, which are responsible for the trigger activity, as we mentioned before, and this can cause BT associated with digitalis toxicity. So delay after depolarization occur in phase four of the action potential, as you mentioned. So good job. Okay, so hey, Kevin, we know digitalis can cause both atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. So can you please explain to us how digitalis toxicity causes atrial arrhythmias? Of course, uh, because that's not something we think of first with DITCH at all. Brody, you and Mary have done a good job explaining the rise in intracellular calcium. And just to really drive it home, most of the effects that we see with digoxin is due to an increase of intracellular calcium as well as an increase in extracellular potassium. So we already know that the rise in calcium can cause increased pacemaker automaticity. The next question is how does it do so? So when we have an increase in intracellular calcium and extracellular potassium, about three things take place. One we've mentioned already is the change in phase four. And in particular, in pacemaker cells, there's actually an increase in the slope of phase four which means the time to depolarization is decreased. The second thing that happens is that your depolarization threshold itself is lowered. And three, because of the increase of extracellular potassium, the resting potential of the cell is decreased. So we essentially have an increased slope leading to depolarization. We have a decreased depolarization threshold and an increased resting potential. So these three mechanisms, digoxin, can actually increase the rate of your atrial arrhythmias. Yeah, it sounds like a terrible combination of electrical changes that can lead to automaticity and electrical instability. Exactly. So wow, Mary and Kavan, that was an excellent overview of the pathophysiology of arrhythmias associated with digitalis toxicity. But that was kind of a lot of information, so I'm just going to summarize really quickly, okay? So in general, what happens with digoxin or digitalis, it blocks the sodium potassium ATPase and increases intracellular calcium. And what happens after that is, number one, delayed after depolarizations in phase four of the action potential, which causes ventricular arrhythmias, in particular VT. There's also increased automaticity in the pacemaker cells, which is responsible for atrial arrhythmias, even though we don't classically associate that with digitalis toxicity. And then lastly, we have an increased parasympathetic tone, which causes AV block, and that's more of an unclear mechanism. And so I know we, ha- we know the pathophysiology and how digitalis toxicity causes these arrhythmias, but I just want to hammer home what you're going to see because we're not going to be thinking through this as intensely in real time. So just think about it. First, the one thing I want you to remember is VT, in particular, digitalis toxicity is associated with bidirectional VT. So if you ever see that on a board exam or in a patient, just think in the back of your mind, digitalis toxicity. On top of that, remember what we presented with our patient, even though it's not classic, atrial tachyarrhythmias with AV block. The last thing to remember, we've mentioned a couple times, including the first EKG we got or ECG we got with this patient, is this abnormal STT segment or T-wave, which kind of looks like a hockey stick or a a mustache. And just if you see that, your radar should go up for, hey, maybe I should think about digitalis toxicity. Brody, that's a great summary of the manifestations of digital toxicity, and especially in this patient who we know is starting to have a more critical presentation. So the next step that I'm thinking about is how do we treat it? 
perfect. And I, I think that that's a great question. And I'm going to go back and just spread the, the love here. And Mary, you know, we had talked about this before. How would you treat this case? And how would you treat the suspected digitalist toxicity? Well, Brody, I'm not an expert in the field, but first, I think you should stop the source of the digitalis. And second, you should try to reduce the levels of the free digitalis with uh, the digoxin-specific antibody that is the mainstay for therapy. So you can start with an empiric dose of 10 vials, evaluate the patient for clinical improvement that you should see after 10 to 20 minutes, and if you don't have any response, you can give another dose of the digo-specific antibodies. The whole idea of mechanism of the DIG-specific antibody is to bind to the free circulating DIG, and that will also allow the dissociation of the DIG from the sodium-potassium ATPase. But this might cause initial increase in the DIG level, and that's for the reason that we actually follow our patients clinically and see if they improve as a way to measure as a, the treatment to be successful. And just to point off of what Mary was saying there, given the DIG fragments to essentially reverse the digitalis, you know, it wasn't just based on the level itself, but the clinical manifestations that this patient was demonstrating. So uh, I'm excited to hear more about the management here, but I think it's a really great case that you guys have all built here that it wasn't just based on a level, but the clinical scenario that the patient had. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll get to that in a second. The one other thing that I'd like to add is these patients really often present with hyperkalemia. And I feel like as an internist, you just have a gut reaction to try and treat that hyperkalemia. But, you know, when I'm thinking back to like medical school and internal medicine and even into this case, there's this caveat with hyperkalemia and digitalis toxicity. And Kavan, can you remind me exactly what we need to worry about with hyperkalemia treatment? That's very impressive. You were able to remember that all the way through med school, Brody. One of the complications, as you mentioned, and it comes back to this patient as well with her hyperkalemia, is how do you manage hyperkalemia in ditch toxicity? So we know that hyperkalemia is dangerous, and we also know how to treat it or at least temporize it on an emergent level. But it becomes an issue with cardiac glycoside toxicity. And one of the concerns that people have is this quote-unquote stone heart syndrome. And this syndrome comes from case reports all the way back in the 1960s about patients who underwent cardiothoracic surgery. And at the end, they were found to have this really contracted heart that couldn't relax, hence the name stone heart. Um, it turns out these hearts had been exposed to calcium or had a very high level of intracellular calcium, which then, of course, bound to troponin C and caused this prolonged contractility and inability to relax. Just as a fun point, histologically, you can find contraction band and necrosis. And so because of this, IV calcium has basically been banished from our minds about whether or not to use it for DIG toxicity. And that comes back to the pathophysiology because DIG ultimately increases intracellular calcium. And here we are wondering if we're going to potentiate its effects by giving even more IV calcium. So for a long time, IV calcium has been a no bueno for dish toxicity. But there is a recent retrospective study from 2011 by Dr. Levin that looked into IV calcium for hyperkalemia and found basically that the degree of hyperkalemia could increase mortality, but it was completely independent on whether patients were given IV calcium. Still, there's not a lot of data out there, and this paper had a very small sample size. 
So IV calcium is still very much avoided and hyperkalemia is treated more symptomatically. And the treatment that you want to give as quick as you can is really the ditch-specific antibody. You know, those are great points, Kavan. And I think some of the data, and you guys can correct me here, has also shown that patients that have hyperkalemia and ditch toxicity have increased mortality. And I think it's specifically at levels greater than 5.5, there's increased mortality. And so it is something that can be used as a marker of the level of toxicity for these patients. And the other point that I think uh, as Brody, Mary, and Kavan, you guys all pointed out with the pathophysiology is as the sodium ATPase returns to action, when the potassium levels drop, if we treat that hyperkalemia, we may be more prone to hypokalemia, which is another issue in and itself in DIG. So again, great points here, and I'm excited to hear more. Wow, Kavan, I think that was some stone-cold knowledge dropping on hyperkalemia and digitalis toxicity. That's almost Amit-level pun right there. I love it. <laughs> well, Brody does great. dad, so he has some excellent dad jokes stored up, I am sure. <laughs> I'll try and refrain from the dad jokes. Don't worry. Um, no, no, no. We, we are big fans <laughs> of dad jokes and nerd jokes and cards jokes. So bring it on. All right. We'll see. I'll see if anything just fluidly flies out. We'll see. Okay. Anyways, I think it's been a great discussion. You know, we've gone through a lot of details of digitalis toxicity, but really, you know, we know how to treat, but as was previously talked about, when to treat is also very important and it's very much based on the clinical scenario. And in general, there's no real consensus guidelines to guide us on how to treat digitalis toxicity. But most sources that I've gone through and that I can remember through training are going to concur on the following. So you're going to treat with digoxin-specific antibody if you have a confirmed or a very strongly suspected ingestion of digoxin or any other cardiac glycoside with the following three things. So with a life-threatening arrhythmia, such as unstable bradycardia or VT, with cardiac arrest just straight up, or with a potassium greater than 5, then you just empirically treat with digoxin-specific antibody. And digoxin-specific antibody can be treated for any cardiac glycosides, but the treatment and the effect of the treatment is going to be differ dramatically, and we'll get to that later. Other possible indications for just treating empirically are going to be greater than 10 milligrams of known ingestion of digoxin. Remember that digoxin is given in micrograms. End organ damage if the patient's doing really poorly and, you know, in shock, or if they have really terrible GI symptoms and are really not able to keep anything down. A level greater than 12 nanograms per milliliter. Remember, our patient's level was greater than or was 1.9 nanograms per milliliter. And then clinical symptoms that might not completely be a slam dunk for digital toxicity in the setting of a level greater than 1.6 nanograms per milliliter is another you know, reasonable time to give empiric digoxin-specific antibody. Thank you, Brody, for that information on how to treat our patients. So just going back to our patient, 87-year-old who's coming with ultramental status, nausea and vomiting, dehydrated, with an elevated ditch uh, level and hyperkalemia, who got to be intubated because of uh, unable to protect her airway. She's critically ill, so what are we going to do? You know, I think exactly what you said is going to give you the answer to exactly what we should do. We just talked about this. So this patient has classic symptoms and, you know, signs of digoxin or digitalis toxicity. Plus, the patient has a digoxin level of 1.9 nanograms per milliliter and a potassium that's greater than 5, it's uh, 6.2. So I'm going to flip it back to you guys. What would you do? My vote is to give her the antibody, Brody. And with COVID on this one, my friends. Let's bring that ditch level down. Let's try to make her feel better. 
Perfect. That's exactly what we thought. And that's exactly what we did. So we gave uh, empiric dosing of digoxin specific antibody. However, the patient's clinical manifestations or altered mental status and her bradycardia and atrial fibrillation all persisted. So within, you know, an hour or two, when the effect of digoxin-specific antibody should have at least seen some improvement clinically, within that time, we gave another dose of antibody, and the patient even got worse after this. She wasn't able to be weaned off of the ventilator, and she became more and more bradycardic to the point where she actually coded, and she needed two rounds of CPR to obtain ROSC. And so she came back, and she was still bradycardic and hypotensive at this point. And we got an EKG in the midst of her being resuscitated. And again, I think it's a very interesting EKG. So Mary and Kavan, I'm going to have you take a look and just describe what you see on this EKG. Wow, Brody, that's a scary looking ECG. There's at least a six second pause at the beginning, followed up by a narrow complex ventricular activity, probably around 100 beats per minute. But I cannot see clear P waves. At first, it looks like it's regular. But after using my caliper that I always have with me, you can notice variation of the R2R interval. So we can see that she went from a long six-second pause with a ventricular activity to AFib. So exactly. You know, I think I'm in agreement. I think this is atrial fibrillation. And on telemetry outside of this ECG, the patient was having long pauses, got even more and more bradycardic after ROSC, and was still hypotensive. And if you're going to go back and look at these ECGs, this is going to be ECG3, label them the supplemental materials on the website. And then that initial EKG is going to be ECG1. And then when the patient becomes bradycardic and is initially in atrial fibrillation, that's going to be ECG2. Going back to our patient, so she really is presenting, you know, after ROSC, she's now in an unstable bradyarrhythmia. And so Mary, with this patient, what would you do? after you, you know, initially resuscitated her, but she's still quite ill. Well, Brody, we need to start ACLS protocol right away. We need to give her atropine, dopamine. We need to increase her heart rate. And she doesn't respond to that. We will need to pace her. She need her heart rate up. I 100% agree. And that's exactly what was done. She was given three doses of atropine at 0.5 and dopamine was started on a drip. However, the patient remained bradycardic and hypotensive. Her heart rate didn't really budge. She had this atrial fibrillation rhythm, and then she was bradycardic to the 20s to 40s throughout all of this, despite all of that intervention. And really, at this point, it seemed like the patient needed to be paced. But again, I'm going to just pull back to the medical school memory and the internal medicine memory. And just I I remember another caveat about transvenous pacing and digitalis toxicity. And Kavan, since you did such a great job last time, it reminded me of what I was remembering. Can you remind me of the data behind or the worry behind transvenous pacing and digitalis toxicity? Again, your med school memory is very good, Brody. This is interesting because like the question with IV calcium, this is a situation where if it didn't involve digoxin, you'd have a slam dunk answer to your next step in management. You have an unstable bradyarrhythmia that's not responding to atropine and dopamine. Your next step should be a transvenous pacer. The concern with the transvenous pacer in this case is that there's this fear that it can precipitate further arrhythmias by the mechanisms we've already sort of discussed. And in particular, there were actually a couple of studies all the way back in 1993 that looked into transvenous pacing in the context of digoxin toxicity. And both those studies found that those who had a TVP had a higher mortality. It was a retrospective case study that looked at 60 patients with digoxin toxicity. 17 of them required a transvenous pacer, and out of those 17, 16 died. 
But of course, this is a very flawed study. It certainly isn't a randomized controlled trial. And the biggest critique is that the patients who needed a transvenous pacer were simply just more sick. And it should also be noted here that those patients were not treated with digoxin antibody. But then fast forward to 2004, there's another paper that re-looks into this issue. Again, it was a retrospective case study. And this one found there really wasn't a difference in mortality between those who received pacing and who did not. And it also showed that there were no major arrhythmic event following transvenous pacing. It is unclear in the study also if those patients received a Joxin antibody. So overall, it seems as though transvenous pacing doesn't increase mortality in newer cases. But then again, these studies haven't been perfect. And there's no real randomized control trial for this. If I had to look at this patient and I had to weigh my risks and benefits, I would be on the side of putting in a transvenous pacer here. So is that what ended up happening? And what did you do? Yeah, Coven, that's an excellent discussion. And we honestly looked at a lot of the data because one of the team members had brought this up. And really what we found is that the most recent data, even though it's flawed, says that there's at least some data to say that TVPs are going to be safe and digitalis toxicity. And we were between a rock and a hard place. This patient was so unstable and bradycardic and hypotensive that she needed to be paced. So we ended up pacing, placing a transvenous pacer. And her heart rate at that time was in the 20s to 40s, and she was hypotensive to the 70s to 80s. And we ended up getting the transvenous pacer in, and we were, again, able to get an EKG right after that transvenous pacer was placed. And if you're looking at the website and the supplemental material, this is going to be ECG number four. And again, Kavan and Mary, would you be, I think this is, again, a, another great ECG. So would you be, be able to help me go through it and see what, tell me what you see? Well, team, we see that she's ventricularly paced. As we can see, there's a YQRS. But if you look for the atrial activity, you can see some fluttering waves, suggestive of A flutter. Uh, and to be more specific, CTI dependent A flutter. And I apologize if I got too nerdy with that one. What do you think, Kevin? Yeah, I'd agree. And it's also important to note that her ventricular rate looks to be around 50 beats per minute. And we still don't see any intrinsic QRS complexes. And it's concerning because it sounds like either she has a very slow rate or she has uh, long pauses. And this is particularly concerning because she's already gotten the digoxin antibody. Yeah, I'm wondering at this point, either the dose is not sufficient or is there something wrong with the vial itself? It's expired. It's going in the wrong IV. It's not getting into the bloodstream. Or is a diagnosis wrong? And so, you know, I'm curious, like, how did you guys figure out how to troubleshoot this next? Because it seems like despite what should be adequate treatment, she is worsening. Yeah, I have to agree with Amit, except I have nothing intelligent to add there, except I'm just blown away at what's going on here. I'm starting to feel a little vagal right now. Just listen to the case, thinking about what's my next step going to be. And if I'm ever in this circumstance, I know that I want Mary, Brody, and Coven with me in the CCU with these kind of patients or any patient, just the amount of thought that you guys have all put towards this patient. So yeah, really excited to hear what happened next. Current, are you sitting down? I am sitting down. I am feeling a little faint. I may need Coven to place the TVP on me. <laughs> Got you. <laughs> all right, good. Just want to... I, I just I'm on I'm sitting down, but I am on the edge of my seat. So I really am just excited to hear what happens next. Guys, let's make sure we satisfy his curiosity before we lose Karan. What what happened? 
I think a lot has happened so far, and I'm just going to stop again and just take a step back and just review what we know. Because this, like we everyone said, the clinical presentation seems like a slam dunk for digoxin toxicity. However, the patient is not responding whatsoever to the treatment of choice. So she's an 87-year-old lady. She's coming in with signs and symptoms and uh, laboratory data that say that she has digitalis toxicity. She's had two doses of DIG-specific antibody given, which really should have reversed a a digoxin level at the beginning of 1.9 pretty quickly. And yet she continues to have bradyarrhythmias, and they're actually worsening to the point where she needs a transvenous pacer, and her altered mental status is so bad that she can't be extubated. So... Mary and Kevin, do you have any extra thoughts on this or do you do you have any extra questions? Do you, do you think we should go back and just kind of reassess or what are your thoughts at this point? I was still wondering how she can have ditch level to be elevated. Is the family giving her ditch? Like is the patient actually taking ditch? I mean, I have a lot of questions about how this could be happening. Yeah, my thought is, as it was said already, either we're completely wrong And this whole ditch thing has been a strange red flag or something else is going on. The one thing we haven't done yet really is interview family members. So that's that would probably be my next step at this point. Yeah, what I'm hearing is that you want a little bit more history and a little bit more information. So I can certainly give that for you guys. So in the midst of this patient doing extremely poorly, members of the team were able to get a a hold of her caretaker family and her blood relatives as well. And what they were, we were able to do is figure out which pharmacies the patient had filled medications at and talk to those pharmacies to see if she had ever filled digoxin previously. And, at, you know, we went back several years and called multiple pharmacies and the patient had never filled a prescription for digoxin whatsoever. The family and the blood relatives were very supportive in all this, and they even volunteered their pharmacy information. We cross-referenced their pharmacies. Nobody had ever been prescribed any digoxin whatsoever. But what we did discover when we talked to her family, who she really didn't have a whole lot of contact with outside of the last week uh, to two, is that they they noted and had been discussing with her that she had been frequently attending a religious ceremony. They didn't get into much more details than that. But over the last several months to maybe weeks, it's a little bit unclear, but the patient had been taking a special tea that was provided at these religious ceremonies. And that tea was from the leaf of a purple flower. And she had done it on several occasions from what the the family had noted. So Kavan, does the fact that this patient frequently drank herbal teas from a purple flower make her clinical picture any clearer to you? This is very exciting because I love historical medicine. And that's honestly what it comes back to. This whole time, we're thinking digoxin. This is digoxin toxicity. Maybe this is something that she got. But it sort of ignores that it comes from natural, or it can come from natural cardiac glycosides. And one of the most well-known or the oldest cardiac medication is foxglove, which I think is a purple flower. We don't think about these compounds very often and how differently they could present. So this is actually really fascinating. You guys, get out of here. Are you telling me you think your patient had digitalis toxicity from the original foxglove plant itself? It was pretty wild. What? I mean, I don't mean to make light of the situation. Our patient is terribly sick and we've got to get on this. And, And of course, this whole conversation is with that in mind. But this is just incredible. And the clinical reasoning and the diligence and the, you know, let's stop to take a pause because things aren't making sense and go back and get more information or go back and reframe the case. 
is just demonstrating and modeling just incredible clinical approach, diligence, and attention to detail. But foxglove toxicity, this is amazing. Did you guys verify this? We sort of did mostly clinically, I think. That's amazing. We'll get into that in a second. We Unfortunately, we weren't able to test the T or get a hold of that. What we did try and do was send out her blood for a more specific assay for digoxin, which wouldn't include uh, or cross-react with any other natural cardiac glycosides just to prove that it wasn't digoxin. However, that uh, sample was lost in transit to the outside lab that we were sending it to. So you mean, unlike Dr. House's team, you didn't break into her house or uh, crash a religious ceremony to get the tea to test that specifically? We thought about it. We, we, had, were we, had, we definitely had we the were urge. together around that time. We were in the fellows room together. And we were thinking like we should have that tea and see what was the result after. Well, but we thought about it. But we well, know that you decided not to so you could be here rather than serving time for breaking and entering. We're going to try and make the case clinically and from what we know about half-lives of these cardiac glycosides that it, it indeed was foxglove, though. And we'll continue in a sec. Amazing. Yeah, because right now where we're at in the case is really that we haven't established that this is foxglove. We think it might be, but we still don't know which cardiac glycoside she might have ingested. And I personally did not before know the color of foxglove. As this is a Good point to mention that there are multiple cardiac glycosides, one of which is foxglove, which I think all of us are familiar with, and the other is oleander. Now, both can be brewed as teas, and both have case reports of toxicity. Foxglove is very popular, and it's even been mentioned on Downton Abbey, if anyone is a fan of the show. But all the active compounds are different from digoxin. There are multiple cases of foxglove toxicity. Uh, mostly from the 1980s, and it's pretty global. One that we detail out here is from 1985. And it's, again, an 85-year-old man. He presented with nausea, vomiting, yellow vision, and an EKG showing scoop T waves, VT, junctional rhythm with bradycardia into the 40s. And interestingly enough, he was treated with a very well-known antiarrhythmic, which is phenytoin. Now, as Mary did, I'm going to have a little pop quiz and ask if anyone remembers which class phenytoin is as an antiarrhythmic. I'm going to say it's a sodium blocker, so class 1. And to be more specific, I think it's 1B. And actually shorten the duration of the action potential that we already talked before. Yeah, absolutely, which is very interesting because it's not a medication we use for that particular reason anymore. Um, oleander, it can also be toxic and it is ingested as teas, but it tends not to be in the West so much. There's reports of it more in the Eastern part of the globe, such as South Asia. So overall, you know, coming back to this patient again, after that little bit of a historical note is that we're starting to tie up this case. We know this patient likely had cardiac glycoside toxicity. We're thinking it's not ditch toxicity. Um, and the next question is, do we know which one of these herbal teas was she taking? And in this instance, the differences between digoxin and these natural cardiac glycosides become very important. And as Bertie touched on right before this, the half-lives are very important. So the half-life of foxglove is around six to seven days, and that's compared to just hours for oleander and then days for digoxin. She obviously was not drinking tea in the hospital while she is intubated unless Bertie was pouring it down. So we can sort of use this information to determine which one of these substances she's been ingesting. 
So from a clinical standpoint, Brody, how long was she symptomatic for? So she actually required transvenous pacing and intubation for 10 days into her hospitalization. 10 days. I'm sorry, I haven't spoken for a while. I was just passed out from the excitement of this case, finding out that it may be foxglove and now hearing that she was requiring transvenous pacing for 10 days. I mean, I'm just, I don't even know what to say. I'm just absolutely blown away by this case. I'm also just so blown away and also very thankful that Karen is still with us and hasn't bageled out. Yeah, I I think this case is very interesting, very crazy on multiple levels. And I'm going to just piggyback on what Coven was saying. So the the half-lives are very important, and the we'll get to it in a second about her course and how long she was probably symptomatic. But the other thing to think about is that a digoxin level, which was obtained, is a very nonspecific level that most hospitals have uh, available to them. It will detect all natural cardiac glycosides, but the level at which it, you know, increases the digoxin level is super variable. And there's, you know, like they're not the same molecules, so they're not going to bind equivalently. The same thing can be said with digoxin-specific antibody. Digoxin-specific antibody, as the name intends, is specific for digoxin, the molecule that's uh, manufactured. And it's it does have some homology with the natural cardiac glycosides, but it may be completely ineffective or not as effective as it would be if the patient had ingested digoxin. So if we go into our case, she was symptomatic for 10 days, plus probably days to weeks before that. So that's on the order of up to two to three weeks, somewhere around that. And, you know, what ended up happening with her is that with tincture of time, no further treatment, we suspected that this was foxglove. And eventually, she her arrhythmia stabilized. The TVP was able to be removed after 10 days. Her altered mental status improved to the point of her baseline. And her atrial arrhythmias and AV block improved. And if you look at ECG5, she has a completely normal sinus rhythm. And it's everything is completely resolved at that day 10. And the final diagnosis, it would be great if we would have gone house style and broke into her house and found her tea and confirmed that it was foxglove. But really, the best fit for the toxicity is in what we know about the molecules themselves. So foxglove is probably the best fit because we know, number one, she was drinking tea from a purple flower. So that's probably foxglove. Oleander is usually red and doesn't really fit from that standpoint. And the half-life actually fits pretty well. Six to seven days times four to five half-lives is around her clinical presentation and how long she was symptomatic. And the fact that the medication, digoxin-specific antibody, was ineffective also fits that it wasn't digoxin and that it was one of the natural cardiac glycosides. And we go back to the natural presentation of what you would expect if this patient had foxglove cardiac glycosides on board and everything ties together. That's probably what was going on in this case. Wow, guys, this was just amazing. And like I said before, you guys just modeled really pristine clinical reasoning, clinical approach, and diligence. You know, you, we started off with a patient coming in with really vague complex of symptoms, and you ended up diagnosing toxicity with a substance that uh, wasn't even on her medication list and effectively supporting her through resolution. And thankfully, she is doing well. In the words of Ajay Pillay from VCU, walking us through the electrical changes and the EKGs and the toxicity, the historical medicine was purely electrifying. So thank you so much for bringing us this fascinating case and giving a glimpse of the kind of incredible work you guys do over there at University of Illinois. At this point, I'd love to ask each of you, Mary, Brody, and Kavin, what do you love about cardiology 
And what makes your hearts flutter about training at your program? Sounds good. I can start. Really, what makes my heart flutter about cardiology is exactly what this case is all about is that you could know almost nothing about the patient, which is what happened, and then just lean back on physiology to figure out exactly what's going on with the patient. Whether it's valvulopathy, whether it's heart failure, you can, you know, reason out based on your clinical examination and further diagnostic test what's going on. And, you know, it's super important to talk to patients and be personable and have empathy and things like that. But the the fact that you're able to just make diagnoses based off of raw data is what really drew me to cardiology. And in particular, to the University of Illinois at Chicago, I think I was drawn there uh, from my interview day. My wife is from Chicago. I'm from South Dakota, so didn't really have great ties to Chicago, but we were going to end up in Chicago no matter what I had to say about it. So ended up interviewing at you know programs in Chicago. And what really stood out to me at UIC was we were able to look up all of the attendings and the faculty beforehand. And I swear on my life that every single one of those was at my interview day. And I was able to like chat with all of them. And they're all very personable, all really nice. And now being in that program, I know that though it's not really a facade. I interact with every single one of the faculty and attendings on a almost daily or you know weekly basis, have a good relationship with all of them. And it really feels like a family here. And I feel like I, I have no qualms about calling any one of them in the middle of the night if I have a critical patient and need to move to the next level of things. And on top of that, I think our clinical training is on par with anyone in the country. From day one, we get hands-on experience with doing PCIs. We get great TEE volumes. Not to mention, we get to do TEEs with the founder of the TEE, Dr. Lee Frazen at UIC and at the RVA at Jesse Brown VA in Chicago. So, you know, overall, it's I couldn't be happier to be here. For me, what makes my heart flutter, aside from the two cups of coffee I've already had today, is the fact that cardiology has such a variety and basically every diagnosis can be fatal and you are in charge of managing that. And it brings a challenge and excitement that I really enjoy. And it also has a ton of variety in the modalities that we use. So I'm just never bored with cards. As far as why I love my program, I think Brody has already hit on how much of a family we all are how nice everybody is in our program and how I was able to feel that sort of vibe when I interviewed there. And of course, I also agree with the fact that we're on one-to-one communications with our attending all the time. We text them all the time. And I've never been worried about calling anyone in the middle of the night if I have a question. I also just love the autonomy that I get at UIC. I'm really the first person to evaluate a situation and determine a plan. And no one really gets in the way of that. And then I can confirm a plan with an attending. But I really just like being the first in line. What makes my heart flutter every day when I go to work is just with something so simple as a physical exam in cardiology, you can make a diagnosis. You can use simple tools as an ECG and an echo that you can put a probe quickly and you can have an idea what's going on. So it's amazing what with physiology, anatomy, and physiopathology you can diagnose and treat and also change the life of your patient that we do every day. Why I choose UIC? Since the first day of my interview, I felt like I belonged there. I felt like everybody was very nice. They showed me how was their day-to-day. And then when I started there, I felt like I was in the right place. Everybody's very nice. 
All the attendants are very approachable. You can text them at any time. You can use as many emojis as you want, and they're probably going to be happy with that and send you emojis back. Since day one, when I was in the cat lab, I was doing a lot of stuff. And then doing teas with Dr. Phrasing, as Brody mentioned it before, it was amazing. So USC is a great place to get trained and become a great cardiologist. You know, Mary, Brody, Coven, that was just a simply phenomenal discussion. And if I could send an emoji right now, it would be a mind-blown emoji. This was a phenomenal discussion in a phenomenal city with a phenomenal group of fellows. And Amit, Dan, and I, and the entire Cardio Nurse family welcome you to the Cardio Nurse family. You have no choice. You're part of the team now. We cannot wait to join you guys in Chicago in person, and just want to thank you all for this wonderful case discussion. Thank you so much for having us here. It's been a great discussion, and we're excited to get back to our afternoon teas. Yeah, thank you so much. When you guys come, uh, we'll have tea with you. Yeah, thank you very very much for the opportunity. It's It's been a fantastic experience, and uh, I think we're all uh, on the same level and ready for tea time at this point. Yeah, just make sure it's not the tea this patient was drinking. <laughs> <laughs> There's no flowers in bloom that we can pick off the street. So I think that's safe. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> uh. And now for the ECPR and award for a program director, Dr. Alex Osion, who is an amazing program director that is always with us, always supported. He's going to tell us his message. Dr. Asian is joined by Dr. Mayank Kansal, who is one of our excellent attendings and the Associate Program Director at the University of Illinois at Chicago Cardiology Fellowship. Thanks for the introduction. I'm Alex Asian, a Fellowship Director and a professor here at UIC. Joining me is my partner, Dr. Mayank Kansal. Mayank, why don't you take a minute to introduce yourself? Really great to be here with you. I'm Mayan Consult, the Associate Program Director for the Cardiology Fellowship Program here at UIC in the Joseph Brown VA. Very good. Thanks so much for having us on Cardio Nerds. I've been a huge fan of the Clinical Problem Solvers podcast for some time, and when the Cardio Nerds was spun off into the greater CPS universe, I was really excited. I knew it would adopt some of the, the same great techniques and areas of medical education interest that CP solvers did. Yeah, I'm relatively new to the Cardio Nerds universe, having been introduced to it by um, you, Alex. I've really learned so much from listening to these podcasts and the amazing work that Cardio Nerds has done recently with highlighting fellowship programs across the country has really been great. Yeah, I'm excited for those to come. This case discussion that Brody, Coven, and Mary put together today was so well done. It made uh, me quite proud to hear them present the case. And I thought the moderation really hit on all the major points. And I wanted to concentrate on just a few take-home concepts that I thought were important and useful to reiterate. One is much of the diagnostic reasoning that takes place in a subspecialty like cardiology is actually much more narrow than the reasoning in general medicine. When we have patients get admitted to us or referred to us, they often already carry a diagnosis, and we're spending more of our time trying to recognize or categorize a specific pathophysiologic syndrome with confirmatory testing like biomarkers or imaging or hemodynamics because we need to understand if they have wet or dry, cold or warm heart failure or whether they have an acute coronary syndrome and what specific subset it might be. 
The second thing that I want to highlight is that subspecialists also do a lot of management reasoning, and that's different from diagnostic reasoning. And we're deciding on workups, optimizing medications, we're making decisions about therapeutic procedures, and thinking about that a little more than diagnostic reasoning, and which is probably true across all of medicine. But the thing about management reasoning is that it's far less well characterized in the med ed literature. So it doesn't have an analogous framework, but it's the kinds of things we spend so much of our time doing every day, negotiating lots of reasonable different options for care, sharing decision-making with patients and families, and then managing the interface with complex health systems and, and dealing with uncertainty. When fellows are reaching this point in their career, they're really advanced learners, and they're actually even closer to the age and maturity of the attendings they're working with, much more than when they're students or residents. And as such, they, they navigate these, these forms of reasoning really side by side with faculty. And so we're often teaching one another and learning together. And any chance that we can get to think deeply and exercise some of our internal medicine muscles is uh, novel, it's different, it's really interesting, and it's a lot of fun. And like Brody said, I think it's really true that, that we're all internists at heart. And when he and Kavan and Mary went through the diagnostic reasoning steps of problem representation, of diagnostic schema, and illness scripts, as the moderators touched on, they also did the crucial work of taking some diagnostic timeouts. And they did this to clear the playing field, to reframe the problem. And after a few iterations, that helped to separate some signal from noise and allowed for the evolution of understanding from incorporating new information. When Brody circled back to the original presenting triad of GI symptoms, visual disturbances, and arrhythmias, that was a great example of Bayesian reasoning in action. And it was loud and clear that digoxin poisoning or toxicity was, was the clear leader for the case diagnosis. And then the last thing I'd say about what this case discussion highlights well is probably what makes working with cardiology fellows my favorite part of the job that I do. And that's really facilitating the purposeful practice of developing cardiology expertise. And so if you think about it, like all of medicine, fellowship is designed to really immerse first-year fellows in Daniel Kahneman's System 2 environment, where their thinking is effortful, it's deliberate, and it takes time. And as fellows get reps, either by discussing cases like this, or as they take care of patients, or finding other ways to practice with deep discussion, they start to progress over the three years to a System 1 approach. And by then, when they've reached that end of the spectrum, they can operate a lot more automatically and intuitively and a lot more efficiently. And when they graduate, they end up graduating from their terminal specialty into their practice. And as lifelong learners, they need to really be able to toggle back and forth between the system one and system two. So the better we can help them engage in that purposeful practice, like this podcast demonstrated, with peers doing so, the more feedback we can give them, the better that they'll be as independent cardiologists down the road. So I want to make sure that I communicate that I think this case discussion was a great example of the nature of our program. And one of the most important things I've ever learned about being an educational leader, I learned years ago from my mentor, 
and that's that the reality of the program director position has really evolved over the last 20 years. It went from being an apprenticeship training model under a charismatic program director. Now it's much more of a team sport. And the emphasis has been placed on uh, process, on outcomes, on data management, and culture building. And we see that in the ACGME's milestone projects. We see it in the clinical learning environment, the CLARE visits that happen to training hospitals. And division chiefs, associate PDs, faculty members, program coordinators, and chief fellows are all the ones who contribute so much to a successful program. It, it really takes a village. And that's why it's so important to be able to do these concluding remarks with our associate program director. He works together uh, with myself, the program coordinator, and the chief fellows at both Jesse Brown VA and at the university. And he's an expert across multiple domains, echocardiography, genetic cardiomyopathies, and heart failure. And he gets recognized for it with routine sweeps of teaching awards every season in all the venues that he works. And so I would love for him to take a moment right now and highlight some of what makes our program a great place to train in cardiology. Mike? Thanks, Alex. Thanks for the really nice words. Alex, I really enjoy being a clinician educator, and Bodie, Coven, and Mary are great examples uh, of why that's... I did my fellowship here also at UIC and Jesse Brown VA uh, back in the late 2000s, and now I've been on faculty here for about 10 years. And one of the main reasons that I came back and stayed that long is what was really nicely put out, placed by Brody and Covenant Mary, the, the family feel of our program. I always felt that when I was a fellow here, that with a very close faculty and fellow ratio amongst all our clinical sites, really provided a great balance of both autonomy and support. I liked how Brody mentioned his dad joke during the case, and it was also mentioned that he's a dad, and he became a first-time dad just a few months into fellowship training here, we really clearly recognize that what happens within the walls of our institutions is equally important to what happens outside of the walls. So we really want to be cognizant of the fact that we have to support our fellows both when they're at work and when they're not at work so that they can really become the great independent cardiologists that you mentioned. It also gives me great pleasure of working here and teaching here is that the environment that we work in, being a state institution with the University of Illinois, and a federal institution with the VA hospital that we take care of a diverse and underserved patient population and that our core missions at both places is to serve these populations. And fortunately for us, this diversity itself that really enriches the pathology and pathophysiology of our fellow C and as well as builds their cultural competence. So it's really a great place to work and, and learn here in Chicago. So thank you, Alex. You bet. And thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mary, Coven, and Brody for presenting. And thanks to the CardioNerds family for allowing us to spend some time learning with you. This has been a great experience. We wish you all the best with your success, and we can't wait to hear from all the other fellowship programs across the country. Wow. What an amazing episode. A huge thanks to the fellows and faculty for enriching us with another terrific discussion and an incredible addition to the CardioNerds case report series. Be sure to check out the show notes for all the case media available for review, key take-home points and discussion points, and links to the program. If you'd like the educational takeaways and graphics delivered directly to your email, sign up for the Heartbeat, the CardioNerds newsletter, by clicking on the link in the episode show notes. 
we thank the ACC Fellow in Training section chaired by Dr. Nasheen Riza for their incredible support and collaboration. And a very special thanks to our phenomenal production team for elevating the platform. Colin Blumenthal, Tommy Das, Eunice Dugan, Rick Ferraro, Evelyn Song, and Vivian Verghese, internal medicine senior residents at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, as well as the team MedEd mentor and University of Maryland cardiology fellow, Karen Desai. If you love the show as much as we do, be sure to spread the word, read and review us on your favorite podcast platform, and consider becoming a patron of the show on Patreon. All right, that's a wrap. Time to make like an S2 and split. Thank <laughs> you.